Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for 1 Peter. It was a joy to go through that for a couple of months. Now as we enter into our summer sermon series and engage with different pastors on staff as well as some guest speakers over the summer, that we would see how different passages of Scripture, different passages that we think we uh, are from Scripture, mean different things than we originally thought. God, I pray that as we envision what this could look like, and the comfort that you actually bring from Scripture, rather than it being misquoted, that it would fill us with joy and encouragement on how great you are. So God, may my words fall down, that yours might be lifted up. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Summer is officially upon us. So kids are excited about going to spray parks and going to playgrounds and hopping on their bikes and going on bike rides. For many of us, we're looking forward to our province being open again. Hopefully we can travel, we can visit some family, we can go on camping trips. It's a really good time. Things are opening up. We had a summer tradition, my mom and I, where the first week of July, we would go on a walk together, and I would say to her, Mom? Really emphatic. Mom? What's my curfew this year? And she would say to me, Dave, remind me what your curfew was last year. And I darn well remember what my curfew was last year. It was 8.15. But did mom remember that? How are we doing, Peter? Okay. Um, And what would it cost me if I misquoted mom and said, you know, maybe if we're at 8.30, she won't remember what it was last year. And I'll get to stay out till 9 o'clock this year. And I think, how often do we misquote our parents? How often do we remember, looking back, we misquote our parents or our kids misquote us? Imagine something like this. Mom, Dad, can I go out and hang out with my friends? And we say, yes, you can go out if, and then fill in the blank. You finish your chores. You clean your room. You empty the dishwasher. You walk the dog. But that's not what your kid says, right? Your kid says, hey, I can go outside, and you yell out, that's not what I said. Someone might say, Dave, are are misquotes even that big of a deal? I was going through um, some stuff online, and I discovered this great quote by Abraham Lincoln. The problem with quotes found on the internet is they are often not true. Amazing wisdom from 1865, isn't it? Did you know that some of our most famous quotes were never actually said? When you think of Sherlock Holmes, a well-known figure, we think of his most famous quote, elementary, my dear Watson, never spoken. In any of his books, that will not be found. It was actually a journalist writing about Sherlock who coined the phrase. Another one many of you have probably heard. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Neil Armstrong never said that. He said, there's one small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind. And you might say, come on, Dave, now you're just getting a little bit nitpicky and you'd fall into my trap. A parent saying you can go outside and play with your friends after you do your chores, you might think, what's the big deal if a kid yells, hey, I can go outside and play with my friends? But imagine that misquote happens on the battlefield. Imagine an army commander says, everyone move forward. On my command, and a lower level infantryman says, everybody move forward and mass chaos. As we so often find ourselves doing here at Ellerslie, let's go back to the garden. 
And in the opening chapter of Genesis, God creates the earth, the sky, and the sea, and all that is in them. Genesis 1:27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created a male and female. He created them and saw that it was very good. And we have this garden paradise. Sin has not entered the world. Gardening was a joy. The animals are hanging out with and getting along. And there's just one command to be followed. In Genesis 2, 16 and 17, God says, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. There it is, black and white. Don't eat from a particular tree. That's the line. That's what God is asking his people to do. Easy breezy, no problem. Let's continue on in wonderful perfection. Enter the serpent in chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? You see what uh, the devil is doing there. He's not questioning if God exists. He's not questioning if Adam and Eve have a relationship with God. He just says, Did God actually say that? God says in 2.17, you must not eat from one particular tree. Satan questions in 3 verse 2, did God say you must not eat from any tree? And so if this is the line, Satan is adding to God's word. He is saying, you cannot do these extra things knowing that he's setting up Eve. Eve gets sucked in, hook, line, and sinker in verses 2 and 3. The woman says to the serpent, well, we may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. This part is true. She walks the line. She doesn't add to God's word, nor does she take away from God's word. But look at those next few words. Neither shall you touch it, lest you should die. Hold up, right? God never said that. Eve is doing the exact same thing the devil did, and she's adding to God's word. She's going above and beyond what God's word actually said, and Satan goes in for the strike. Verses four and five, the serpent said to the woman, you will not die. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The devil is still a liar. The devil comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. He's not going to come with these huge, massive lies, but he's just going to come enough to question it. When we see him at the beginning of chapter 3, he adds to God's word. And then here, later on in chapter 3, he takes away from God's word. God isn't actually going to kill you. For those of you new to church and not quite familiar what happens next, the rest of chapter 3 tells how Adam and Eve eat from the tree, break their perfect relationship with God, sin enters the world. Humanity has felt the repercussions for thousands of years. This is so important. In misquoting God, we develop false expectations and trust is broken down. In misquoting God, we develop false expectations and trust is broken down. Does that mean that the relationship is over? Not at all. But it means that the relationship begins to erode and we miss that wonder, the beauty, the majesty, the comfort, the glory that God has in store for us. Over the next number of weeks, we'll be looking at ways that people twist Scripture how we misquote Scripture and how we say things that we claim are from Scripture that actually aren't written there. 
Some of the most famous ways that scripture is misquoted might be something like this. Money is the root of all evil. God works all things for good. The Bible never says that. What about something that's twisted and turned upside down? You ever go to a gym or see a really built guy who's probably a Christian and he has a shirt and it has Philippians 4.13 on it. And it says, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. I can bench press 225 pounds. That's what the scripture says, but I don't think that's what the scripture means. And then there are phrases that just aren't even in the Bible. I remember being in high school and one of my teachers said regularly, God helps those who help themselves. Cleanliness is next to godliness. God never said that. Okay, three foundational statements before we take a quick look at today's passage. The first is this. As we build our foundation, we need to be reminded all scripture is God-breathed. 66 books of the Bible, over 40 authors, prophets, and persecuted, servants and kings, farmers and those who rule over countries, different languages, different times, different cultures, all with one big idea. In a letter to a young pastor, we read in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And so as much as we love our favorite authors and you think, oh, there's such wisdom and insight in Timothy Keller. Oh, I love how Beth Moore takes a Bible study and really helps us understand it. The beauty and the poetry of C.S. Lewis or John Mark Homer. I just want to read more. But it's not scripture. The second part, scripture will occasionally contradict culture. Our culture is all in on justice right now, aren't we? anything about racial reconciliation preach it does the bible say something about how jesus welcomes everyone jew or greek slave or free female or male all of it we love it did you know that one of the main topics jesus covers more than anything else is money and then we say hold up god hold up i worked hard for my job I went through all that education. I have my personal experience. I got here on my own. God is saying, it's not your money. You know, there's six times that there's lists of sins in the New Testament. Six times. Where at least three sins are mentioned, usually half a dozen or more. There's only one sin that's the same in all six of those. Sexual immorality. How does our culture respond to that? What about the two words that we looked at over and over and over again in 1 Peter? Submission and suffering. And we just want to white it out. Maybe just rip it out and say, God, I don't want to deal with that. Finally, scripture is all about Jesus, not about me. I think this is where we really starting to get into trouble. Because Eve believed a lie. If I eat of that fruit, I will be like God. No, 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 Eve. God wants to know if he can be number one in your life. If you will put him first and foremost before everything else. I wonder how many Christian schools over the last month used Jeremiah 29 verse 11 as their verse for grad. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Well, this is great, and it's good stuff, and we're going to look at it in, I believe, two weeks, 
But tell that to the apostle Paul, who had to suffer constantly for God's name, who was shipwrecked, who was beaten, who was whipped, who was imprisoned, who was hated by many. Jesus, in talking to the religious leaders of the day, says to them in John 5, 39, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me. The Bible isn't about us. It's about God. All scripture God breathe, and sometimes it's going to contradict culture. If you have your Bibles with you, we can open them up to John chapter 14. I forgot to check, but the Bibles might be in the pew racks in front of you. If they're not, you can certainly download this app. Um, If you have a physical Bible that's a little bit tricky to understand, the table of contents tell you where the books of the Bible are. We're in the Gospel of John, big numbers of the chapter numbers, small numbers of the verse numbers. I mentioned just a couple of minutes ago that if we misquote God, it develops false expectations And trust is broken down. So let me ask you a question. Just a rhetorical one. What do you think is the number one reason people leave the faith? What do you think is the number one reason people leave Christianity? Is it maybe an abuse of power? We talked about this last week as we wrapped up 1 Peter, that we've been a part of churches where the pastor or church leadership were too domineering and they just lorded it over us. And 1 Peter says, no, 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 church leaders, that's not how we're going to act. We're going to serve eagerly. We're going to serve willingly. We're going to serve by examples. Why do people leave the church? Maybe we've just lost that sense of wonder. There's a book on my bookshelf that I see regularly, and it's uh, titled, Recapture the Wonder. I was talking to a missionary who came back from Africa. He was only there for a year. And he said, Dave, the North American church has lost the wonder and he walked away from God. I don't have any statistics or articles to prove what I'm about to say, but I wonder if the number one reason people leave the church is because God doesn't do what we want him to do. God doesn't do what we want him to do. My little boy, um, uh, he's five years old. His name is Hawksley. He is a prayer warrior. And if you say, Dave, how can a five-year-old be a prayer warrior? He prays about everything. If you've heard the phrase, stop, drop, and pray, he is teaching my wife and I how important prayer is. I was driving a couple months ago, and I, somebody cut me off, and I muttered something a little unbecoming under my breath, and immediately my five-year-old prays, dear Jesus... Thank you for daddy. Please help that stupid jerk to get off the road and for daddy to get home safe. This kid prays about everything. He prays about, do we get the campsite we want? Is someone going to come to faith? Can mommy find her phone again? Whatever the case might be, he prays for it. About a month ago, he was stuck in a level in Mario, and he said, Daddy, 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 can you come downstairs? I can't get past this level in Mario. And I must have failed in the exact same spot at least a dozen times. And he says, well, I'm just going to pray. I'm like, sure, kid, pray, whatever, I don't care. Dear Jesus, thank you for Daddy. Help him to beat this level in Mario. Next try, beat the level. I'm like, who is this kid? But we're actually running into a problem. Because occasionally, God doesn't answer his prayer. And he goes, Daddy, what's going on? I prayed for it. I prayed in Jesus' name that God would answer this prayer. And it's not happening. 
John 14, 14, Jesus says, if you ask me for anything in my name, I will do it. And how often do we not misquote it? We say it word for word. I don't know what translation you have in front of you, but it's awfully close to the one I just said. And you think, this is what the Bible says. Heavenly Father, I've been without a job for a year, and that job that I just found is perfect for me. I have the qualifications. I have the experience. My references are excellent. They will absolutely help me get that job. I pray in Jesus' name that I'll get this job. It doesn't happen. We're excited that our province is opening up. And I hope that you get to travel a little bit, see some family, go camping, whatever you do to rest and relax. And we pray and we go, God, we need this rest. We need this relaxation. And God, I pray in Jesus' name that you would help me to get that campsite and we don't get it. And maybe it's a little harder than that. God, I know you're out there. And I know it's your will that my marriage succeeds. But God, it's hard. And I pray, oh God, that you would save my marriage I pray, oh God, that you would get my daughter into med school because that's all she's talked about for the last three years. And I pray this in Jesus' name. God, COVID has destroyed my company. And I pray in the name of Jesus that you would save me from bankruptcy and I'd be able to provide for my family. God, the abuse won't stop. And I don't know who to talk to. I pray in Jesus' name that this person would stop abusing me. And the cry of our heart goes out to heavens and God doesn't do what we want him to do. Therefore, God isn't real. God doesn't care about me. And the whole Christianity is fake. We've taken the scripture and we've twisted it. And we've misquoted it to mean what we want it to mean so it'll glorify us, not God. And God says, I never said that. And the relationship breaks down. My friends, if you believe this, it will destroy your soul. If you believe in the prosperity gospel that if I name it and claim it, if I see it and believe it, my new favorite, if I blab it and grab it, it'll be mine. I had a friend tell me that when she was a kid, her family would go to show homes. And I don't know if show homes still do this or not, but I remember being in elementary school, there would actually be raffles to win the show home. And dad would walk around and maybe he would touch the walls or maybe he would put his hand on uh, the fridge or something like that and he would claim it. In Jesus' name, I claim this house. In Jesus' name, I pray that when we enter this raffle, we will get it. I see it, God, and I believe it's going to be mine. And it will break your soul if you don't get it. It's not like that hot girl teenagers walks into summer camp and you go, Dibs, in Jesus' name, she belongs to me. Doesn't work that way. So what do we do? First things first. Consider the context. You can understand how this might be a little bit intimidating. Dave, I've never been to seminary. Dave, I've seen your office. You have bookshelves filled with reference books, and you get to sit in your office and study all day. I don't get to do that. Totally get it. 
Sometimes it's a little bit tricky to figure out, but let's start small and we'll slowly increase those concentric circles. What do the verses say on either side of 14? If you have your Bibles in front of you or your tablets or phones, for most of you, verse 15 will start a new paragraph, maybe a brand new passage of scripture. But let's look at it anyways. What does verse 15 say? If you love me, you will obey what I command. When I was in Bible college, um, there was a floor of girls and they made that their saying on their hoodies, boys, if you love me, you'll obey what I command. But I don't think that sounds like a God who's on our beck and call now, is it? In fact, it really sounds like we're here to serve him. So if that's verse 15, what does verse 13 say? And here's what it says. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. Why? That the father might be glorified in the son. So second rhetorical question this morning, what do you think it means? You can whisper to the person sitting beside you. You can write it down on your phone. You can just think about it in your head. What does verse 13 mean? It's as simple as it looks. To glorify the Father. Okay, so let's look at a slightly larger passage then. Not, let's not just look at a couple of verses. What does the actual chapter say in chapter 14, chapter 13, maybe chapter 15? Most of your Bibles have subject headings, but if you don't, or if you want a little bit more information, about 40 or $50 will get you an NIV or an ESV study Bible. Absolutely worth it. Chapters 13 and 14 are what commonly referred to as the farewell discourse. Jesus is sharing his final meal with his disciples. It's the passage where Jesus washes their feet. And he tells them once again that now that they're in Jerusalem, he has come to die. Well, this would be devastating news. Jesus says, but don't worry. I'm going ahead to prepare a place for you. It's that beautiful verse, John 14, verse 6, where we read, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Well, the next verse, uh, verse seven, I believe, Philip, one of the disciples, is rather confused by this comment, and he says, can't you just show us the Father? Jesus must have been a little bit disheartened at that point. Philip, don't you get it? If you've seen me, then you've seen the Father. For the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. This is about a relationship. It's about a belief in Jesus, not about what he can get you, but about what he has already done for you. Expand those circles even bigger. What is the book of John about? We just spent nine weeks in Peter. If you were here for six or seven or all of them, I hope that you walk away going, I think I know what first Peter is about. Every week, Pastor Dave, every week, Sid talked about resilience. Hope in the midst of suffering. And you'd be right. That's what Peter is about. But John is unique. John is actually one of only of a couple books in all the scripture where he says, this is what my book is about. In John chapter 20, verses 30 to 31, we read, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. And so the book of John is written that you might see that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the savior of the world. He's God in the flesh. And we'd be so transformed by this incredible news that we would pray in Jesus' name for his glory because of our belief and our faith in him. But it raises other questions. If God doesn't answer all my prayers, 
then how do I pray? What do I do when something is really important to me and it goes unanswered? This is where we survey the scriptures. There's a seemingly endless amount of resources on prayer. I'm gonna give four ideas for us to think about this morning. The first is this, motives matter. I'm not sure anyone says this more clearly in the book of James, um, than James. He writes in four verse three, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. That sound familiar? Oh God, I really want a new deck. And God, I pray in Jesus' name that you would give me a new deck. I know a contractor, I know what wood prices are, but God, I want this deck. Maybe it would be a better prayer to say, God, if I were to get a deck, it would be an opportunity for me to invite people over, invite my neighbors to enjoy the backyard, invite my neighbors to have a barbecue. That would be special. Now, there's nothing wrong with praying for a new deck. God cares about you and loves it when you talk to him, but there's a difference between praying for a new deck and praying somehow for his glory. Our motives matter. Our relationships matter. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus preaches his longest message, commonly referred to as the Sermon on the Mount, and he spends quite a bit of time talking about prayer. In chapter five, verses 23 and 24, he says, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. Go, be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. In other words, if you want me to listen to your prayers, if you want to grow in relationship, then make sure your relationships are right. A short time later in chapter six, right after the Lord's prayer, Jesus says, if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your father will not forgive your sins. Our relationships matter. Friday, June 25th, 4.30 p.m. Present count, 1,323 unmarked graves. And so we can say, God, please restore relationships between the indigenous people and the rest of Canada. And that wouldn't be a bad prayer, but do our relationships make any difference? Do you know the difference between Pharisees and Jesus? It's kind of tricky. Do you know the difference between Pharisees and Jesus? The Pharisees are all about this outward appearance, someone might say, and Jesus is all about an inward heart. Maybe you've heard people say something like, um, don't smoke, don't chew, and don't go out with girls who do. This is what Pharisees are like. Don't do any of that. But then you come over here and you go, but Jesus, he's about an inward life change and something dramatic that is changing in his life. There's a different way of looking at that, a way that I find really helpful. The Pharisees were all about avoidance. I don't want to be seen with sinners. I don't want to be seen with that prostitute. I don't want to be seen hanging out with people who are of a lesser status than myself, but Jesus is very different. And he says it's about engagement. It's about working and living and understanding who people are. Do we want God to answer our prayers? Relationships matter. Can we pray for racial reconciliation? Of course we can. 
but will we talk with our indigenous friends? Will we ask God to bring indigenous friends into our lives? Relationships matter. Integrity matters. Over and over in the Old Testament, we see God mad at the Israelites because they won't listen to his laws. In the book of Exodus, it's just an incredible story of God rescuing his people out of slavery and bringing them um, into the desert. And they're walking around the desert. God has just um, killed Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea. And they arrive at Mount Sinai. And Moses is up on the mountain for 40 days, about to bring down the Ten Commandments. And do you know what the Israelites do? They build a golden calf. And they start to worship it. And God says to Moses, I'm going to kill them all. The prophets continually beg people, especially the kings, to turn their hearts and their minds back to God if they want God to listen to their prayers. And God's logic is pretty simple. If you're not going to listen to me, then why should I listen to you? Going back to James and his rather blunt and straightforward approach, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective, he says. Can't count the number of conversations I've had with people in my office, going out for a walk, out for coffee at some point, and they say, Dave, God's not answering my prayers. So I say, talk to me about your devotional life. Silence. You know, the last time we talked, you mentioned you have this struggle with pornography. How's that going? Don't want to talk about it. You know, the last time we talked, you mentioned how you and your husband were always fighting and arguing and yelling at one another. Yeah, that's not got any better. And we wonder how much of our integrity is at stake. Are we living the way God is calling us to live? And God isn't expecting perfection. But is there a desire to become more and more like him? Certainly, there's a lot more I could say on this short survey. The final thing is this. God's will matters. We could pray with the right motives. We could have great relationships. We could be people of outstanding integrity, but God still holds the trump card. It's not like you go, oh, check, check, check. I've done all these things. God's going to answer my prayer. That wouldn't make him God. That would make him a cosmic vending machine. It may very well be God's will that you get the cottage that you and your spouse are praying for. And God says, use that cottage, that lake lot for my glory. It might very well be that God heals you from cancer and you go out and you tell wonderful stories, but there's also stories of people who aren't healed from cancer. It might be God's will that your child comes back to faith and is a powerful instrument for God in both the church and the community. But it might be God's will not to answer your prayer. And it might be God's will that you never have that baby. And God might allow your marriage to come to an end. And the abuse might not stop. Even after you've cried out for help. And you say, God, why? I'm praying in Jesus' name. Why is this not happening? That leads us to the final part of our message today recapturing Jesus. In each of these false claims we'll be looking at over the course of the summer, there's a comfort that comes from right understanding. And you might say, Dave, what's better than name it or claim it? Who cares about the house? I'm going to ask for a lottery to come my way. But then what happens when we don't get it? 
and God is reduced to a genie in a bottle. Faith in God doesn't rest on what he does or doesn't do for me. Faith in Jesus rests in what was accomplished on the cross. Now, time doesn't allow for me to go into a robust theology on suffering, and neither is what that what this message is about. But I feel it's important to say a couple of things here. If God keeps you in a place of suffering, he has a reason for you to be there. Well, that might not be the comfort you're hoping for. I hope this next idea will be. Nearly every fairy tale shows us a protagonist who experiences deep pain and tragedy. Somebody wants to see them dead. A family member makes their lives miserable. They are captured by a terrible monster only for them to somehow overcome and live happily ever after. And you might be saying, Dave, did you just compare my life to a fairy tale? Yes, I did. I know not everybody's into fantasy. I totally get it. But you've probably heard of Lord of the Rings. You've probably seen that struggle or read about it and, see, and heard that this incredible little hobbit has to go through hell and back before the glory happens. Maybe you've read about seven years of Harry Potter experiencing this man who wants to kill him. And so your pain might not go on for weeks, might not go on for months, it might go on for years. But we have a God who meets us in the midst of suffering. We have a God who understands suffering more than anybody else. We have a God who suffers on the cross for our sins and says, I've made it through to the other side. Prayer isn't there as a wish list to be answered, but an avenue to grow in relationship. It means that praying in Jesus' name, we come with all the authority and the power and the strength of Jesus. It means we go to the throne room of God only to be stopped by the angel on duty and says, by what name or by what power are you allowed in this throne room? And you show him the seal of the Holy Spirit and you say, I come in the name of Jesus and the angel lets you in and you get to talk of the, to the king of glory. Now, illustrations, especially of this sort, are going to fall short, and I totally acknowledge that. But let me try. My wife and I are looking at pouring a patio outside our, our back door. With the prices of wood, we realize cement is almost the same price. So I called a contractor friend of mine, and I said, hey, um, I have no idea where to start. Do you have anybody that I can call, anybody that I can talk to? And he gave me three names. And the first guy came um, from a company you've all heard of, and he shows up and he says, hey, we're going to have to do this and that and the other thing with all the cribbing, with everything that's going to take place. Um, this is your price point. And my mouth fell open and I said, it's how much? Twice what I expected to pay. I went back into my wife and I said, I don't even think we should call the other two guys. We can't even come close to that. But I thought, oh, what the heck? I'll call one more guy. So I call a second guy and he shows up. He gives me a price significantly better than the next guy but still way more than I wanted to pay. And then he looked at me and he said, hey, Dave, how did you get my name again? And I said, oh, Michael gave me your name. He goes, that's right, you're Michael's friend. And Michael's name and Michael's authority and Michael's background and Michael's relationship with this man 
he looked at me and he said, I'll drop that price by 15%. Certainly falls short of who Jesus is. But I hope it gets the same idea across that when we come to the King of Kings, when we approach the throne room of God, we come in the name of Jesus with all his power, with all his strength, with everything he's done. And we say, we come in Jesus' name and we pray with godly motives and we're people of integrity and we're people who seek to have great relationships. And we say, heavenly father, for your glory, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this gives us incredible comfort. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this sermon series and for the things we're going to learn about Jeremiah 29, 11 and Philippians 4, 13 and judge not lest you be judged and so many more. And God, there's something that has drawn us to that false claim. And God, there's times that we've prayed in ways that would not bring you glory, but would be there simply for personal good. God, we ask for forgiveness for that. And God, instead, we ask that we would pray in accordance with your will, that we would strengthen our relationships, that we would pray with godly motives, that we would be people of integrity, praying that your will would be done for your glory, so that as you will it in heaven, so it would be on earth. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.